Zero emission capable ships are coming, but they're not coming quickly enough. And capable is doing an awful lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. But even if we squint and avoid the question of how environmentally friendly a theoretically environmentally friendly ship really is, the ships aren't really the biggest problem right now. It's the lack of zero carbon fuels coming down the pipeline that's keeping most industry executives awake at night. The scale of the challenge to produce green fuels is being vastly underestimated, and all of the imagined green corridors in the world are not going to scale up demand at a pace that is needed. For shipping to progress towards the next phase of this fuel transition, and in order for it to be in line with the ambitions set out by the IMO, there needs to be a fundamental shift in terms of policy, investment, public-private partnerships, and, let's face it, a leap of faith by investors on all sides. I was out in Athens this week at the Global Maritime Forum, the details of which I will tackle elsewhere on LoisList.com, and you will hear about that later. But for the purposes of today's edition of the podcast, I'm focusing on a few key conversations I had out there about progress towards shipping's zero-carbon future. And yes, you have heard me talk about this before, but the theme of this year's GMF was moving from ambition to action. And that's important because we're now at the point where we're in danger of stalling, and we need to see those pilot projects and agreements in principle start to scale into something more tangible. And I think what's interesting about the conversations inside the GMF, which I've been attending since its inception, I'm very supportive of, they're changing. They're changing the conversation, but perhaps not in the way that many of the members had thought about last year. The lack of regulatory ambition has been a pretty consistent thread woven through all GMF discussions over the last six years. And the glacial pace of change within the International Maritime Organization, well, that was routinely identified as the blocker, as the bit that was preventing progress towards shipping's zero-carbon future. But the greenhouse gas reduction pathway agreed by the IMO in July, that has stripped away a very convenient scapegoat and left many who had, well not been expecting quite such an ambitious agreement to emerge, it's left them exposed. That's my personal view, of course, and I can tell you it's not an overly popular one inside the GMF discussions, but I think it's worth addressing. It's a thought I put to City's Michael Parker, who, apart from revelling in his newfound status as shipping's answer to Greta Thunberg, is also the chairman of the Poseidon Principles, a programme, of course, born out of the GMF. I asked him whether he thought I was being a terribly sceptical old journalist or whether I had a point. And before you listen, bear in mind these conversations were recorded on the sidelines of a very noisy conference in central Athens, so I'm afraid there is a little bit more background noise this week than usual. I think it's it's sort of fair, and I don't. I think we all need to be sceptical you know, in order to maintain the pressure. I think the... Um, the surprise of the outcome of MEPC 80, I think we should view positively because I think it sends a clear signal that even if it's challenging, the regulator is saying what needs to happen. Now, the question is going to be how in the next two or three years they, they reset the regulation to make that happen. So let's not give them a free pass. We need to make sure that, that they live up to the policy execution against that ambition. But I think it, 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 it's, if, if some people have been caught on the hop because they didn't expect it, too bad, but they'll have to catch up. And, and, and for all of us, I think that adds an additional incentive, particularly in the near term with the 2030 um, 
striving target. It, it does set a level of ambition that may be tough to reach, but, but the IMO has done its job in a way that people were skeptical about. And I don't think we should blame people in the industry for being caught by surprise given the, some of the previous track record of the IMO and some of the mood music coming out beforehand. So, so those people in the industry who didn't expect this, you know, they will have to catch up like everyone else and uh, that's part of the process. But what about that question of progress? Given the theme of moving industry from ambition to action, can we really be optimistic that the IMO's regulatory signals will now be enough to catalyse change? I think I'm more optimistic because I think what the IMO did was get as close as it could with 175 countries in unanimous agreement to aligning with Paris. So we know that SBTI is the only 1.5 trajectory that has come forward for shipping that meets the UN uh, high-level expert group's definition. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't other 1.5 trajectories, obviously. But I think by being so close to Paris, the logical thing is the IMO should move to Paris in 2028 when it revise, re reviews its ambition. So I think it does send a very clear signal. I think the role of cargo, why that is important, it goes to this sort of cross-sector view of shipping, which I think people within the shipping industry often looking inward don't realise that actually it is the cargo that drives the shipping industry. Without cargo, ships don't move. And it is the pressure on those cargo owners around their own decarbonisation of their supply chains that is being looked at by their shareholders, by their consumers, by their regulators if they have them. So it's the pressure on the outside world just as much as the shipping world that actually connects shipping to that. So shipping isn't going to sort of sit in isolation in the corner like it used to like to do. It's actually central to the global economy and shipping should reflect positively on that opportunity and I think that the encouragement it will therefore get from working closely with cargo owners and the fuel suppliers makes me more optimistic because the global regulator has set, sent a very clear signal. Now some people may say it's not quite there. I think it's almost there and we should use that but again use the next few years to make sure they uh, change the regulations around CII, do the things they have to do to help everyone have a common set of definitions and, and, and work to a common set of rules that the IMO becomes therefore important to the big cargo owners because the IMO is defining their scope three emissions in their supply chain. So the IMO becomes a much more important regulator than just for shippers. The inconvenient truth, however, is that the shipping industry is not moving fast enough towards zero carbon ships or fuels, certainly not to meet current targets anyway. That, of course, risks further regulation and more costly transition as a result. According to an annual study which assesses the industry's progress towards the milestone target of at least 5% scalable zero emission fuel being used by 2030, the industry remains off track across a series of crucial metrics. So I asked podcast regular and UN climate champion for shipping, Catherine Palmer, 
how concerned she was about the lack of progress and how far off track we really seem to be. Um, I don't know if I would say concerned, but I think um, I think the 2030 and 2040 targets are definitely the ones that should where we should be focusing. Um, I think you know I think we're the only sector that's got these interim goals um, and targets, and so I think you know the the course the of the trajectory, the, the direction of travel is there, the timeline is there, and so really when it comes to taking action, you know, that, that boundary, that framework is there for us to, to be able to take action. And I think what I've seen is um, maybe, like you said, a little bit of um, still 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 waiting and I think it's it's not just in the maritime sector I think when we look across we can see that demand um, signals are, are weak in all sectors whether so if we take the um, the breakthrough agenda report which has um, other sectors like green hydrogen green steel road transport and you look at the recommendations that came out of that report that was launched in September again it's the demand recommendations that are not signals that, that are not there so so I think this this clear articulation of making that commitment that you know we want zero emission fuels in this quantity by this date with this life cycle um, assessment, with this greenhouse gas intensity, with this sustainability criteria, we can make that signal quite clear that then provides the certainty upstream for the fuel producers to be able to, to know there is a, a market that is readily available, ready to transition, ready to, to, to buy this fuel. So I think... Um, I think there is this maybe this period of kind of um, settlement around what actually happened at the IMO and trying to understand and translate it into real world action that we can still um, think more people can start to take action because I think otherwise we're just people will sit back and wait for those regulations in 2025 but this period between now and then is for the industry to work with the policymakers and the regulators to make sure that that regulation, when it's adopted in 2025, meets not only the level of ambition, but it's 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 effective, um, rather than setting regulation that potentially delays achieving the level of ambition. So progress has been made. It's perhaps not always the big dramatic advances that we might see in the headlines, but. The feeling within the GMF discussions this year is that we are in a different phase of that conversation. Here's Jan Dieleman, Head of Cargo Logistics and Transportation, but also Chairman of the GMF itself. So no, I, I think we are at a different phase in, in the whole decarbonisation journey, and, and I'm saying that for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, um, if you wind the clock back, I think five, six years, a lot of people were very sceptical that shipping had to do something. I think. 
that is gone. Uh, we're here in Athens, and I think even the more conservative part of Greek shipping community is actually agreeing that, that we need to do something. And we can all disagree on, on what it is exactly, but in the end of the day, I think that notion has, has changed. So that, that's, a, that's a step change for me. I think beyond that, I think there's been an awful lot of time and effort being put, mainly by the private sector, to be honest, in, in trying to figure out what the pathways were on the technology, the technological side, the fuel side. Uh, you see the engine makers really having made a move, and uh, some of them are available, some of them are going to be available soon. Um, the first uh, methanol, green methanol ship is on the water. Uh, so so th there is a lot of things I think has, has changed. And I think lastly, one thing that has been missing and I think been quite frustrating for a big part of the of the, of the of the maritime industry is that the IMO is also starting to raise its ambitions and, and coming up with a timeline in, in, in when we are going to be seeing some of these, these measures. And I, I know there's still some skepticism on what really comes out and are we going to get delayed, are we going to get some, uh, some loopholes here and there. But I, I think the, uh, the, tra the trajectory of, of travel, I, I think, is, is, is extremely clear. And, and, and when you talk to people here, I, I, I can just notice it. I, I, I do think this whole notion as well on, on efficiency, mm. where we've been talking about for I don't know how long, I really start feeling that there's really step changes being made at the moment. And, and I think partly that's because people see that regulation is coming and they'll need to do it anyway. So mm. I, I think we are in a different phase, um, but we still have the issue, how are we going to go from pilots to scaling it up? And I think my biggest fear um, that I'm having at the moment is what do we do in the period between now and some of the IMO implica implementation of the of the new regulations, and are we at risk here that we're losing momentum? And, and shame on us if we do so. Um, and that's why I think it's important that these concepts like the green corridors are, are really having to somehow plug that gap between where we are today and, and when the IMO is coming with that firm regulation. That gap between what we have today, which is a direction, and what we will have, we hope, by 2025, 26, once we have a clear idea of what that carbon tax looks like, what the regulations at a national level are going to start feeling like for individual shipowners. It's a bit of a sort of regulatory hinterland. Now, an optimist might view that as, you know, a window for the industry to lead on. Um, <clears throat> You're not entirely sure that everybody is going to um, see it that way. No, and, and you know, I'm, I'm probably the optimist in the industry here, so I, I, I think it's a great progress. It's going to be messy, let's, let's be clear, right? And, and if we're really honest, uh, some of the regulation that is, has come out or will come out is, is not really 100% fit for purpose in, in every single part of the industry, and, and I think you just need to deal with that. But I, I, I do think it's going to be important now as well in this intermediate period to find those segments also within dry bulk mm. that can actually afford the green premium and, and, and really get closer to those end users because I think that is the key to somehow bridge this and, and that is a step that we need to make but there again we need, we need people to chip in. On that specific point of customers that are willing to pay a green premium we've you know, you look hard enough in, in containers I think you can find some you, you seem confident that you can find some in bulk I'm not seeing any in tankers. Um, you know, this is not a, a homogenous story we're telling about shipping. This is a sector by sector, region by region approach. Overall, do you think we are making enough progress? And I'm asking that question in the context of the report that we've seen produced today that says we're off track. 
Yeah, I think it's it's not a surprise that we're off track, and and, and I think someone said it earlier. Uh, I think it was actually yesterday that some of the regulation will come with certain targets. We might not meet some of these targets, which probably means that we're just going to have to double down on regulation again. So I, I think that is that is a fact of life. I, I do think, and I've said this a, f- a few times before, I think is uh, the whole maritime industry is not going to decarbonize at the same speed. And, and there is going to be segments that are going to go faster for, for different reasons. It could be because logistics is easier, point to point. It could be because they are closer to end users that can actually afford some of these things. Um, in dry bulk, and I think you also see it in car carriers, uh, the automobile industry is clearly uh, a segment that is, is looking at this. We're going to have a whole green steel movement that is starting to, to happen in Europe. So I think there is definitely points there. You have a whole bauxite alumina kind of segment that is also uh, probably a little bit more easy to tackle. But yeah, we, we will have parts of the industry that is going to be more difficult. And you're talking about oil and I can see that. Um, but you could make the case that if you're talking about used cooking oils and, and all these kind of things, that the story might be slightly different again. Okay. I mean, the, the one thing that has changed since the last time we had this conversation at a GMF level last year is obviously the IMO regulation. Now, I think it's fair to say that quite a few people in the room were not expecting the IMO to agree the measures as stringently as they have. And certainly, if you'd taken a poll in the room last year at the GMF, I think most probably would have said that we wouldn't get anywhere near having a 2030 uh, waypoint. Now we do, and they did. And it's not 1.5, but it's not a million miles off. That's kind of caught the industry off guard, I would argue. And a lot of people that were previously trying to pin the blame on the IMO for lack of progress are now basically saying we cannot meet the speed with which you are trying to get us to uh, move this industry. So the, the goal has changed. The, you know, the useful scapegoat of the IMO, unfortunately, is no longer there. Um, do you think the industry has rather been exposed for assuming that somebody else was going to f- be the full guy for this? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's, it's human nature, right, that you always try to look at someone else to, to blame for the things that you can't or, or don't know how to solve yourself. So I think that's the case here. And, and to be honest, uh, personally, I was also skeptical that they were able to get it over the line. And, and, and I was very pleased. And, and, and yeah, you always want more, but I think what they got over the line was uh, was actually quite impressive. And, and, and now I agree, there's a part of the industry that says, oh, wow, did, uh, how are we actually going to do this? And this is actually big. And and I think that's right. And, and I think one of the things that also came out of, uh, out of the discussions that we had today is everyone also needs to look at themselves and say, what are the, 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 the couple of things that I can do to impact this? And I think that, that's what we need to do, because if everybody does a little bit, I think we can get a, a long way, actually. Mm. Uh, we've had this discussion before. I think you've spoken on the podcast about it. But the the near-term requirements, I think everybody is reasonably confident about 2050 because it's so far off that they don't necessarily need to be detailed. What the last 12 months has really shone a spotlight on is the fact that actually in the short term, we are missing progress. Now, in terms of the ship orders that's one thing but in terms of the existing fleet do you think the industry is taking its eye off the ball in terms of retrofitting efficiency measures things that we can do now with proven payback relatively low outlay we could change the industry quicker than we are doing without thinking about future fuels or future ships no and i think that notion starts to sink in and uh, the whole notion of retrofitting uh, we also need to be pragmatic right a ship goes into uh, into special survey once every five years so there's only one window right so it's not that you can take a ship out of service any day and, and do all the retrofit that that's just unfortunately not how it works 
Uh, but what I can see as well is what, what for me is a big change is we had a period of time where everybody was talking energy saving devices or ESDs as you want to call them. Um, and it was all anecdotal, right? And, and, and I've made the joke a few times that if you add up all the claims, you you had a ship that was actually producing fuel, right? Because if you add it all up, you, you got to more than 100%. And I think we're getting better in, in somehow the, the data element of it and being able to really say, okay, this is the saving that you actually can get out of paint because we have a certain sample size, we we, we have normalized it, we have the digital twin, etc., etc. So I think the claims and, and the understanding of what some of these energy saving devices could bring and also the combination of them, right? Because that's another complicating factor. I think we made a big step change, which is giving a lot more confidence for people to actually implement those. Because I think so far, if you would go to a ship owner, and we've had it ourselves, it's like, if you want to do that, that's great, but can you give me a five-year charter? And, and you pay for it. And, and I think now you're getting to the point where people start seeing a, a few EU maritime, they're seeing that the IMO is going to come, and everything starts to see that whatever scenario you put yourself in going forward, a more efficient ship is definitely going to be worth more than a non-efficient ship. And I think that's a big step change. Uh, let's talk about green corridors for a second, if you can, because you've said yourself, the, um, the frameworks, the agreements, the technology, these are all within grasp, if not achievable today. What's missing is that element of commitment and actually agreeing to things. How would you characterize the current status of green corridors as a whole. I know that some are more advanced than others, but do you th are you concerned that it is still too much of a paper exercise? I think, I think the, first of all, the paper exercise that's been done up to now was absolutely needed. So I, I, I don't think we, we, we can disagree on that. I do think when you start implementing these kind of things in corridors, you come across a lot of issues that you don't really think about. And today, some of them came up. What do you do with fuel standards? What do you do with bunkering logistics? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of things that you actually need to do permitting-wise and, and, and all these things. And I think that is the phase where we're in uh, today. And, and I think we start making some progress. We've heard some of the, uh, of the governments uh, pledging some support to actually chip in in, in some of these factors, which is, is absolutely needed. I still think what is still a little bit missing is somehow finding the end customer around those green corridors that is actually able to absorb some of that premium. And, and I think that is the next filter that will need to somehow be applied on what green corridors could actually work and, and which ones might be a little bit more challenging shorter term. Even if you've never been to a GMF before, you've probably worked out by now that it's a pretty positive conversation. These are the can-do attitude executives that attend these things. Its membership may flinch at such reductive descriptions, but it essentially represents the self-identifying progressive wing of the industry's companies and, despite its global ambitions, retains a pretty northern European-dominated agenda. Now, if I gave you just the edited highlights and sound bites, you would probably come away thinking that progress was steaming ahead in the industry and clever people were doing clever things. And you wouldn't be wrong. That is absolutely part of the narrative. But I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't look beyond the sound bites. Here's another podcast regular, UCL professor Dr. Tristan Smith, the man behind much of the academic study driving objective assessments of how the industry is doing in its ambitions. Yeah, I think lots of things have changed. I think the supply side has changed. The supply side of energy commodities has changed. But I don't think we're getting that reflected into the meeting today. I think there are some really fundamental misunderstandings 
within the value chain mm. and for some reason the, the GMF conversation hasn't unpacked those and refuted them so there's a, it's almost like even though this is a multi-value chain multi-stakeholder conversation it's being dominated by a very very narrow ship owner perspective um, and potentially a more northern European um, perspective so it's it's really it's I think it's hard to come to a GMF summit and and, the, and take a real measure of progress um, because of the confusion in the conversation. Like some of the misunderstandings that mm. occur between the people ordering ships and the people who are going to have to supply their future fuels. And a couple of the conversations here have been really illuminating. And I think even though the conversations reveal misunderstanding, they also reveal the work that needs to be done next. And that's what moves on every time you have one of these meetings. Just explain the misunderstanding, because I'm, I'm not entirely clear what you mean when you say there's a, a disconnect so, there. So, what, so the notable thing in the last 12 months in terms of investment activity is the ordering of methanol fueled ships mm. and a very large number of 200-odd ships, right? And that's really interesting. It's, it's exciting because that is a manifestation of the fact that we do need to get some ships built that can run on fuels other than fossil fuels. And... Um, and so that's a positive sign, but the logic behind it is really interesting. The logic seems to have been two things. One is, if big players move, that will move the fuel supply market. So if big players move, then that sends a very strong signal, and the people who can supply the fuels will jump. And the other piece of logic is interesting is hedging, because a big player has moved, is a good thing. So. So then you get other, other mask obviously moved and then others followed without necessarily inspecting the fundamentals of whether the, the appetite to supply that fuel to a relatively niche market, i.e. shipping, let alone a subset of that niche market, uh. was really there. And the fact that that judgment was made is really interesting and illuminating, I think. The judgment that we can just build 200 ships and, and this, will be, this will create demand. And obviously, you know, it's interesting that these are methanol ships. And I think certainly if you if you talk to Maersk, they don't view methanol as the end goal here. This is what they can do now. And they are very much in the mode of our customers demanded that we do something. This is something. But everybody else seems to have leapt on that as this is the move that we need to make now. And as you say, it's not necessarily clear that that methanol supply chain is going to be there to support the number of ships. And yet, the progress report that we saw yesterday with input from UMass makes pretty clear that even with those ships, we don't have those, enough. We don't have enough, we don't yeah. have enough you know, of a demand signal. And it feels like we're going round in circles on this chicken and egg discussion of which comes first, the ships or the fuel. And we have neither. We don't. And the message on the, in the UMass report is really... Is really interesting that the supply side seems to be in a better position than the demand side, but the supply side for a different commodity. Mm. The supply the numbers in the UMass report show that the current committed supply of ammonia is much higher than the current committed supply of methanol. Mm. So I think what we have is just the natural consequence of a transition, which is you start with a bit of confusion and people make a move, but that doesn't mean that's the final um, end game. This isn't really. I mean. I think there's the question about whether methanol is the right fuel. I'm trying to separate it from that. I think it's the kind of logic that you could see where, given the need to do something, people jumped without 
worrying about whether the fuel supplies would be there. Mm. Now, you can say that that's brave um, and that that's exactly the sort of action that we needed to break the unending conversation. I think it's helpful either way because if no one had jumped, then we'd still be in a hypothetical conversation. But now someone's jumped, the conversation is hypothetical. And so now, now you can take that information and react to it. Mm. The, 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 the fact that the market has significant, this fuel supply market has, has not jumped and it is looking very hard to see where the, the methanol of any type of supply, of supply pathway is going to come from yeah. is, um, is, is useful information. So, the, the fact that they did jump before having, or did they jump before having those conversations? I mean, there must have been those conversations. Merck was very specific. Merck effectively built its own supply chain because it knew that it wasn't going to get it any other way. But did everybody else who has ordered a methanol ship today have those conversations, or was this just a leap of faith? I, I'm sure. I'm sure everyone has had conversations. I guess the question is, to what extent was the due diligence done on the answers? If you go and ask a supplier. Can you, can you give me some fuel? And it's still a kind of high-level conversation. You're not down in the details of price and contract and volume. Then the supplier will probably say, hey, yeah, of course, you know, of course, I can give you some fuel. <laughs> but if you then if you then go to the supplier with a very specific contract and say, and here is the price and the volume, and then they say, well, actually, that's not something that we can do, but maybe we could do this, and that's not the answer you want. And but I guess that's what I mean is you you have to progress through these these steps. No, it's not that any step is right or wrong, it's just it produces the information that enables everyone to see, okay, what, what, do, we, what do we need to do next? Yeah. And, that's, and that's really helpful. What about the question of the IMO? It's, it's been name-checked a lot um, in terms of evidence that the industry has moved and it's been referred to as a historical uh, you know, change in the conversation. The reality, of course, is that it caught much of the industry off guard. They weren't expecting something as um, ambitious as what was agreed at the IMO. Now, granted, we now have to wait uh, five years to see you know, whether or not the nitty-gritty of that detail is actually going to turn into legislation. But the fact is, the IMO is, for the next five years, not really there as a scapegoat for people who would otherwise have wanted to blame the lack of regulatory progress. Do you, do you think that's coloured the conversation that we're having now? Yeah, I, th I definitely, well, I, th I think the IMO outcome has impacted the conversation in the industry. I think it's impacted it in a couple of ways. So you have, you have misunderstanding. There's, I mean, it's really interesting to come to the summit and run sessions on the subject and still find a decent percentage of the audience don't have the basic fundamental knowledge of what the numbers are mm. and therefore what they might mean for their decisions. Um, so that, that is, that's, to, so, so to some extent it hasn't changed the conversation because there's the misunderstanding. I think that's starting to correct. Um, but it's also created a, a sort of backlash and in a backlash in some very inter interesting places, I think. Um, so I've been particularly following what, for example, some of the class societies are saying, and I was astounded to see that Norska Veritas's maritime emissions forecast with its fuel analysis and emissions analysis based on a CO2 pathway which wasn't close to what the IMO agreed in its revised strategy and this was published two weeks ago so there's no excuse to not have that outcome mm. but when you go to the detail of what they discuss about technologies and fuels all of the modelling has been done on the EU's greenhouse gas reductions mm. and the pathway of the fuel EU um, 
fuel standard, which is which is about a decade behind what the IMO agreed in its revised strategy. So the narrative that is being used in much of the sector, undoubtedly informing some of the statements being made, like it's not possible, yeah. by some pretty important players, is very um, is very corrosive. Um, but it's also, I think, ultimately futile because I can't see how the regulators would react to that. All they do is drive a norm yeah. that damages um, the wrong, damages the sector by creating the atmosphere the wrong, for the wrong investment decisions. Okay, I have let this week's edition run longer than I should have, but I have come back from Athens with a huge amount of interesting discussion in my bag, and I wanted to share at least some of it with you this week. There will be more to follow, I promise. Uh, for now, though, thank you to Michael, Catherine, Jan and Tristan for their contributions that have made it into this week's edition. And thank you for their time for the stuff that hasn't but will do. Thank you to those who haven't yet featured on this podcast but did take the time to talk to me. I promise I haven't ignored you. You will appear. Um, thank you to the GMF as well for allowing me to be part of the conversation and their willingness to encourage real debate. Um what can seem like dissent is really an attempt to get to some fundamental truths. And the fact that they encourage this debate, I think, is a really important part of what they do. Uh, thank you, of course, for listening. Have a good week, everyone.